Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Make him an offer, Kill us if you got the chance. I can handle things. I'm smart. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Hello and welcome to the Quadfecta, a podcast where we examine the works of a director who has delivered four truly great films in a row. Uh, I'm Mitch Bryan. I'm John Ingle. Remember, folks, this is only a game. <laughs> We're just playing around here. We're gonna. Hopefully, nobody's gonna get too upset. Well, we're gonna talk seriously about film while playing a game that is not to be taken too seriously. I think we're we're slightly worried that people might get mad at us. I guess that's why we're saying. This. So we're gonna find out. I guess we're gonna find out. I, I want to make one point um, of order here. You said we're discussing the films uh, of a director who has accomplished four truly great films. We don't know that yet. I want to make it clear: we're not coming into this episode with that decided. The, the episode is about deciding whether they have the four truly great films in a row or not. So we don't know. At the end of this episode, it might turn out that our uh, today's subject did not accomplish the quadfecta. But that's part of the game. Okay. That sounds yeah. good to me. I just want to make sure that's clear. We're not coming in with any preconceived notions. Well, our guest is coming with in with a, with a series of films that they want to talk yes. about. And they're putting forth this idea that this director has has delivered four in a row. And our guest today is filmmaker and cinematographer Todd Norris. How you doing? I'm great, and uh, I'm honored to be the guinea pig in this uh, new endeavor that you guys are doing. So uh, I'm uh, happy to be here. So talk to us about why you just, who you decided to bring and why you, why you brought this director. Well, I decided to uh, bring in Australian director Peter Weir. Um, one of the reasons why I decided to do Peter Weir was because I originally wanted to do John Landis, but apparently he's spoken for, so, <laughs> so that's cool. Right. Um, and gosh, you know, talk about... That's a slightly different slightly frequency. Slightly different frequency, yeah, yeah. And so I guess the reason that I brought him in is uh, it's very rare, or much more rare, for a filmmaker to have accomplished four amazing films in a row versus three. You know, there's probably right. quite a few that have done three. For whatever reason, four is that magic number where a lot of a lot of filmmakers drop the ball. So, in my head, when I was thinking about who can who can I do, you want to pick somebody maybe that's more personal to you. Yeah. And so I felt like Peter Weir. I, he's not necessarily obscure, but he might not be somebody on the top of somebody's mind like a Martin Scorsese or somebody who, you know, uh, maybe more mainstream or that may have four in a row. So uh, I personally dig Peter Weir films and in a weird way uh, in the short films that I've done there might be moments where I felt like oh this is my this is my Peter Weir moment that I'm doing right here <laughs> and um, which is interesting because maybe I don't think he necessarily has a really identifiable style I think that's one of the things that's a point of pride with him that he he says he deconstructs his work every time he goes in and makes a new movie yeah so he's very interested in that but I would I would posit that by the time we get finished today, we're going to have found some things that create a continuity yeah, in me, his work. Yeah, me too, definitely. Um, 
So uh, I don't know. Do I need to say anything more now? Or um, Well, I guess I should first ask, are we going to talk about Master and Commander? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. See, that's one of the things that's also interesting about Peter Weir is that uh, whereas some directors might have a good run of three or four and then very quickly kind of, you know, gone off the deep end into mediocre to bad films, I don't... I can't say that Peter Weir ever really had a dud. No, I think he's. Ex- I think he's. I mean, I know there John, might be John one that Grown. people mention. Are mentioned. we forgetting there might be Green one. Card? See, I think. I think. I think I'm Green st- Card is even. If you take away the fact that Peter Weir did it, and you just if it was just some movie, you'd think like, ah, oh, that's a decent. I. I, hmm. I don't know. I. I, I haven't seen. I've it only in a long seen time. it once, I but I remember to... coming out of the theater going, yeah. Oh, I fine. remember. Yeah. I remember despising it. <laughs> Well, it was a, it was a big hit. I know it was too because you know he's had some I, Master and Commander being from for me the saddest example of this extraordinary movie that just didn't hit at the box office and yeah. it's so sad because that movie is so it's, fucking good. It's it amazing. Is, it's and incredible. There's, I, there's no movie that anyone could name that I wish there was a sequel to more than yeah. Master and Commander. Yeah, and there was there was going to be right. For, oh yeah, it was built for it. There's a series of books. They ended it on a note that made you feel like, oh, we'll be back again with these this crew. And I still, I still want it. It's not not going to happen now. Yeah, it's a shame. It, it really uh, is. I mean, they they resurrect things pretty late in the game nowadays, and they have in the past, of course. But um, I don't want to. I don't want a Master and Commander sequel if Weir's not doing it. And I don't know. We're running out of time not to get into. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's not a young a young man anymore, and and the idea of him want, even wanting to do a maritime a maritime adventure film is probably gone yeah i would imagine but but it is know. an extraordinary film but it's not it's not in this uh no it's this, a little late in, in the game of, and know. for those of you who are unfamiliar with peter weir's work although i'm assuming that the the people who are really going to be the the people who listen to this podcast every week are going to be hopefully fairly film savvy and but the hypothetical person out there that may not be very aware of peter weir's work his probably his most well-known films would be the Truman Show would be one of that them. That would be the one. Probably and and Dead Poets Society, maybe. Maybe, I don't yeah. know. Maybe I'm dating myself. But those are the two big hits that he had, big mainstream films. But yeah. he's had a long career of uh, amazing films, in two my opinion. Interesting. Two films where we have dramatic, one a little more dramatic than the other, but two very dramatic performances from over-the-top comedians That's like true. people we think right. about right. it's an interesting consistency between those two movies and you could argue that they're probably are the most well-known because of the stars like i would say pe- people don't think of dead poet society as peter weir movie as much as they think of it oh that movie with robin williams right. mm-hmm. and the same with the truman show yeah. but um there's no doubt when watching those movies that you're watching peter weir movies either like mm-hmm. if you're familiar with him you see them all dead i recently rewatched dead poet society uh having I had just read the um, the biography of Robin Williams that came out recently and felt like I needed to revisit some of his performances. And I watched that film. I was like, yeah, this really is. I forgot. I kind of forgot it was a Peter Weir movie. I knew it was. But in, the, in one way, I kind of forgot when I was watching. I was like, he's got his. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he's got all kinds of trademark visual, um, you know, signatures that he has in his movies. They're not like brazen. They're not like right on the surface. But if you're. One that watches Peter Weir movies a lot, you can see him in all of his movies, a little bits of editing in the way, kind of the way there's that trophy case scene. It's kind of the famous scene in Dead Poet Society where he's telling the kids, hey, look at these guys. They're all dead now, but they were once you. And he get, you know, that whole speech. And I'm like, the way it's cut, the way they they cut to the faces, the close-ups and everything. Anyway, it's very signature Peter Weir to me. You know what's interesting is he, and again, not to try to take down the auteur theory, but 
um, he has, over the course of his career, had a fairly steady small group of creative contributors who have worked with him a lot. So his cinematographer, Russell Boyd, and also then John Seal, who was, when Russell Boyd was shooting his films, John Seal was the camera operator. And then his wife, Wendy Weir, is basically production designer of many right. of his yep. So there's been this kind of core group, and you it's debatable how much of that style comes directly from him and how much comes from the regular creative contributions from the same people that he's worked with for 30, 40 years. Yeah. Well, that's definitely something we're going to talk about. There's a couple of people. You already mentioned one, Russell Boyd. We'll definitely talk about him. There's a, other, uh, another character, I think, that um, one of the, the people that worked with him consistently, at least at first, and I think you see a change when that person leaves his little group. But is that we'll the film editor you're talking the about? The editor. Yeah, I don't want to... Okay, so, well, let's let's start with um, Gallipoli. Yeah, we'll start with Gallipoli. And I'll be selfish because that's the first Peter Weir movie that I ever saw. Oh, okay. And it was... Uh, I had heard about The Last Wave and Picnic at Hanging Rock, but I didn't, I didn't see them until after I saw Gallipoli, and I think I saw both of those movies uh, on a double bill at maybe at the New Art in Los Angeles. But, um, but I, I think that Gallipoli was really left this huge impression on me when it when it came out what are your legs springs steel springs what are they going to do hurl me down the track how fast can you run as fast as a leopard how fast are you going to run as fast as a leopard then let's see you do it a story you'll never forget. That's it. I'm gonna join up. Hey, the girls go wild over a uniform. Yeah? Of course, in your case, I don't think anything would help, but you might as well give it a go. <laughs> hey, we could all join up together. Count me. Come on, Frank, you gotta be in it. No, thanks. If you blokes all wanna go and get yourself shot, go ahead. Well, I'm not scared to die for my country, Frank. Well, good for you, Snow. You go and sign yourself on. Well, you must admit, mate, nothing could be worse than this here. Can't argue with that. It's the story of two friends who go off to World War I and eventually become runners at Gallipoli when essentially the British sacrificed a bunch of Australian and New Zealand soldiers for the sake of a ill-conceived beach landing. And it's looked upon bitterly by, I think, the Australians. I mean, they think about it being one of those instances where they were kind of sacrificed. And I think it was a defining historical moment for them, too, in a way that I, I, I guess it's considered in some ways that's when the, the country lost their innocence and also when they started to turn away from the British Empire. You know, their war movies tend to fall into like two camps. There's war movies, which have a lot of war as hell, but also have a lot of glory built into them. And then there are anti-war movies who are not at all interested in glorifying anything. And that's Paths of Glory and Come and See and Red Badge of Courage, probably. And I think Gallipoli falls into that category. I mean, it's a very strong anti-war movie. Well, absolutely. Is there a heroic moment 
in the wartime no. sequences of this movie? Absolutely I mean, except not. For, except for him maybe making it across a, a, a beachhead where there's a sniper. Uh, that's that's Just, as close as you get. You know, he saves his skin. You get sort of Gibson's character's arc kind of comes to a head right there, right? Mel so Gibson's this is Mel Gibson. This Mel is Gibson. Mel Gibson, by the way. Sure, we haven't. For those of you who don't know, Mel Gibson is in Gallipoli, um, and he's he plays a character who's very hesitant about joining the war effort. Um, spends a lot of time trying to figure out a way to have the lighter. Like he wants to be into not in the infantry, but in the what they call it, the light in infantry. The light horse. The light horse. But that's only because he doesn't want to be in to begin with. He wants to have a bike shop, and he kind of yeah. gets sort of carried away by his mm-hmm. friendship with um, Archie, played by Mark Lee, and winds up deciding, well, if I got to be in, I guess I'll try to get into the light horse, and then he can't ride a horse. So right. <laughs> he winds up back in the infantry. So he's pretty screwed. But yeah. the, there comes the moment that you mentioned where he crosses this, um, there's this one spot on the beach where they've, they're have they set up, with this, it's set up earlier that there's a sniper there, and you don't want to go that far past that spot on the beach. And he makes the decision to do it. And so that's the slightly, that's the subtle heroic moment in where you see his character come full circle and do something like could have been sacrificing himself um, to do his job on the beach. Um, that's it. That's not, there's, there's nothing else. There's no big glory moments. There's, you're right, very much an anti-war movie in that it never once even comes close to glorifying war that, that I can think of. There, of there's a great moment where they're. The obligatory lost in the outback scene mm-hmm. uh, that seems to show up in a lot of Australian movies, and there they intercept a, uh, a a guy with a camel out in the middle of the desert, an old grizzled guy, and they have this conversation with him. Uh, and I'm just going to play that clip now because it sums up uh, a very clear anti-war attitude that the movie has. We were told there's a property due south. Yeah, old Dan's place. Got about ten more miles to go. He'll probably give you a ride to other meet. Where you headed? Perth. I nearly went there once. Uh, thought I would have seen one big city before I die. You looking for work? No, I'm after the war. What war? The war against Germany. I knew a German once. How did it start? Don't start him. Don't know exactly, but it was the Germans' fault. The Australians fighting already. <laughs> In Turkey. Turkey? Why is that? Ask him. Because Turkey's a German ally. Oh, well, you learn something every day. Jim, can't see what it's got to do with us. We don't stop them there. They can end up here. And uh, welcome to it. <laughs> Since we just came out of that clip, I did want to mention that um, I, I rewatched all the movies that we're going to be talking about just over the last week. I've, and it was really... Interesting because some of these that we're going to talk about, I haven't seen probably since the 90s, believe it or not. So I'm, I'm kind of going on my memory to uh, in terms of how much I really loved these movies. So there, there was a little bit of a gamble, I think, on rewatching these. I'm like, geez, I hope these hold up so that my choice of Peter Weir uh, seems to be correct. What is interesting to me is that, and this is just for me, but I always thought that John Seal, who's the cinematographer of some of his films, I always thought John Seal's just a better DP than Russell Boyd. I always thought Russell Boyd was kind of like, he's fine, but John Seal's stuff's better. And now, with the benefit of X amount of years of experience, I'm watching Russell Boyd's stuff thinking his stuff is, is in many ways more subtle, more naturalistic, maybe more um, directly serving the story rather than being a little bit like look at me and beautiful 
Um, so what I was really struck by in Gallipoli, in many ways, you were talking about the obligatory lost in the outback scene. That whole sequence is just gloriously shot. And, yeah. and, and, and one of the compliments that Peter Weir paid to Russell Boyd was saying that, look, any director of photography can do a good job indoors with candlelight or some moody kind of indoor lighting. But if you have the harsh sunlight of Australia, that's a little bit harder to do. And he said, nobody does magic with Australian harsh sunlight like Russell Boyd. And you look at that sequence and it's, it's amazing. Um, and just simple framing things about like where to put the horizon and when to go from a wide angle lens to a super telephoto lens where the, the heat is shimmering, you know, and then that shot of the, the guy that they discover with the camel, everything is just, I, it's like, I forgot how gorgeous the movie was. And, um, one last thing I'll say about that is that actually all the ones that we're going to be talking about, I never saw them in a theater. So I sort of discovered Peter Weir on VHS. <laughs> oh my gosh. So and with Gallipoli, you, you saw the, you I saw, it saw pan and scan, the right? horrible pan and scan yeah. version, which meant I really didn't see the movie when mm -hmm. I first saw it because 40% of the image was gone. So it was a revelation to me just recently to see it in CinemaScope like it was shot. It's beautiful. You know, there are these dolly shots, these tra side tracking shots, because there's a, a subplot dealing with the fact that these guys are runners and they have a couple of different races. And it's so fun to watch these races and the camera is is on a dolly track and it is just hauling ass trying to keep up with yeah, these yeah. guys as, as they're running and it's it's really immediate and kind of there's something kind of creaky about it which which makes it you know it's not some slick steady cam following these guys it's really really the, wonderful the opening sequence is archie mark lee doing a a sprint uh in 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 his uh farm town and you're right he takes off and he and the the dolly doesn't quite keep up, and he's yeah. in the wrong part of the frame for about half the shot, and then they finally get it, and yeah. it's like, oh, I guess they didn't do take two, you know it's that great, that was it. Though. Yeah, but it's I like, always find that stuff exciting, yeah, and kind of more dynamic in a way. When it, I don't know, you feel you can feel it sometimes yeah. when things are a little off with the shots, but it yeah. feels right. And and from an audience perspective, yeah, we're not keeping up either. Like so, that makes sense. And the Weir guy's has too fast said that us. he likes the danger of. Not exactly, you know, wanting to have enough time in the schedule to try things and maybe to change his mind when he gets there ready to shoot. So I like those rough edges that all of his movies have. And sometimes they're really bravura shots. There's a shot in Master and Commander where the two guys are climbing down the ropes and the camera seems to be just like following them through space. And I'm like, I don't know how they got this shot on a boat. And then they get to the deck and they walk up the deck and, stand, you know, the camera never cuts. But is there something really exciting about uh, about his? Yeah, and I I think, especially in his earlier films, uh, there was much more of a sense of going by your gut and then and and using improvisation and not really having a super meticulous plan. And one of the films that we're probably going to be talking about real soon has a lot more of that. And I think that Gallipoli just be, partly because it was the most expensive Australian film at the time, and just by the nature of there being a sort of battle sequence at the end there was probably somewhat more as he went on i think he started to do more and more uh planning and moved somewhat away from the improvisation but certainly that's part of the thrill of of all of his movies and especially his earlier ones and i think some of that comes from the fact that he he began in australian television and also he did these kind of review shows like basic kind of comedy sketches and and things like that and apparently Monty Python might be the reason that he got out of uh, 
TV and went to films because he was doing these kind of comedy sketch shows for Australian TV. And then he saw his first episode of Monty Python and realized, I mean, he literally said, all right, we're not nearly as funny as those guys. I'm moving on to something else. Right. So Interesting. If, if he hadn't seen Monty Python, well, the there other, might not be any Peter Weir films. The other thing's worth mentioning just quickly about Gallipoli, I think, if you haven't seen the movie, is the fact that it's a two-hander. You're dealing with these two friends who then get separated and then brought back together again. And the way that it chooses to do that, like how much time they're going to spend with character A and then how much time is going to be spent with character B is really unusual and it's unpredictable. And it's it's one of the things about it structurally that I think is so surprising. Um, the other thing that's kind of notable about it is how many of these great Australian character actors are in the film, especially there's this one guy, uh, Bill Hunter, I think is his name, and he was in Philip Noyce's... Um, Called, it was called Newsfront. That was mm. so. He's the the kind commanding officer mm-hmm. oh, who yeah. has the oh. who has the Victrola. He, he's and in. Uh, the, he's also in Strictly Ballroom. I think isn't he? Isn't he one? Isn't he the guy that runs the the whole dance? I think so. That scene with his wife. You only get that one moment with his wife, and it's like you don't even know this character, right? And she sees him off at the ship. Yeah. It's an and amazing it's moment. Oh my god, it's, it's heartbreaking. heartbreaking. You don't even know who these people are. Well, and it's because and it's yeah. so well done, so well performed and so, and it's just done with one one shot, right? Yeah. I think so. I think it is yeah. and it's just oh, it is really heartbreaking. Well, there's this, there's and you a, love that guy it, for the rest of the there's movie. There's a first beat where he gives his wife kind of the cursory hug or a little bit of a something like I'll be back. And then he starts to go up the ramp to the boat and he leans over and gives her an actual emotional kiss, yeah. which for some kind of semi-overweight, middle-aged commander. It's a moment that doesn't seem to need to be there. And you're right, it completely humanizes this guy and therefore humanizes everybody going on that boat. And, it's a great moment. And we're holds on, they hold on her turning around. Mm-hmm. And you get her reaction to it, too. Uh, and I forgot, there is one cutaway to a bottle of uh, champagne. Yeah. She's like, you can drink this on, our anniversary. This on our anniversary. So you get you know that he's going to be gone for a long time during important moments of life. And uh, it really kind of sums up uh, going off to war in this one little scene with characters we don't know, which is very interesting to me. But then the rest of the movie, you love that guy and you're in the trenches with him and you're kind of, you could feel for him and you understand even more um, from his point of view as a commanding officer, why you get a little bit of paths of glory yeah. is what you get with that guy. You kind of get the Kirk Douglas point of view from paths of glory, even though it's not that guy's movie. I, it just I gives do, yeah. another wrinkle to the war I mean, he's, story. We're is a, we're is a humanist director. I mean, he, it's, I yeah. mean, that's probably staying the obvious, but he's, he is so interested in the humanity of the characters in his movies and not every director is like that. Let's, let's face it. You know, right. I mean, probably one of the things that you could say about some of these th- films that we're going to talk about is that they, they are these political situations but he's less interested in the politics and definitely more interested on how that world affects the human beings and the relate. He's you're, like you said, he's a humanist. He's much more interested in the human well, beings. He's interested in how human beings are affected, but he's also interested in human beings place on the planet in nature. I mean, that's going to come right. up with other mm-hmm. movies we're going to talk about as well. That's a good segue to talk about. Sure. About the last wave and about the the apocalypse, the humans faced with the end of the world. Potentially, I did, I did want to ask you guys one question. This is a this is one of those how I read the movie questions. I want to see if you guys read it the same way as me before we leave Gallipoli. At the end, when Archie is asked to be the runner and sacrifices that privilege, which is a uh, keeps would have kept him out of danger, to give this privilege to his friend played by Mel Gibson. I'm forgetting the character's name, but. Mel Gibson was Frank, and Frank, Mark right. Lee was Archie. 
Archie's faster than Frank, right? Yeah. And aren't we to believe this is kind of the war, the irony, the the sad, tragic irony of war? Aren't we to believe that if Archie would have stayed, kept that position, that he might have made it back and saved everybody? I don't think so because the no. last time they race, um, when the, when they race the second time, yeah, it doesn't doesn't Frank win? Maybe I mean when I, they race to the pyramids. I just I don't know something about it. for one thing to me it's one of the great movie endings. It's one of those places where the storyteller. Realized, and I guess it was not the plan. They, they didn't know how they were going to end the movie um, going in, but they realized we could have this moment where he he's running. That's what he is. He's a runner. Yeah. He's running, and when he gets shot, that's it. That's the movie. I mean, what else is there? We're going to get more Mel Gibson reacting to that? No. And to me, I love it when a storyteller knows right when to plot of a movie. I think Peter Weir is one of the best ones at it. We might talk about that some more. But I got this feeling like, for the first time watching this movie, oh, wait, was there an ironic sort of twist a sort of anti-war message there too where even the good-hearted sacrificial uh effort of the character actually did him and everybody in right because that's war like you can't win you can't win anyway even if you do the morally right thing or the kind thing i mean the other thing that's so shocking if you think about it is that the poster for this movie is the last last frame frame of the movie like it's the end of the trailer as well like you get that moment at the end of the trailer it's so it doesn't matter it's still it still punches you in the sorry folks spoilers (laughs) um and I, i i guess we uh yeah, it's not a spoiler-free show, folks. No, I mean... Film, film analysis is a tough business. So. Should, well, one thing to bring up, uh, because I know we want to move on to these films so we don't run out of time, but I did want to bring up the the music in this film. Oh, yeah. Because it is something that, if we're talking about a stylistic thing that Peter Weir does in many of his films, is the use of basically needle drop synthesized music yeah. uh, for things that don't necessarily... Where it doesn't seem like that's the obvious choice. Right. And in this film, he used um, Jean-Michel Jarre music for all the running sequences. And it really just makes the movie come alive because it's so... I mean, it's almost, it's it's jolting. It almost takes you out of the movie because it's just, you think, oh, this is a World War One period piece. Yeah. And then suddenly you get this, this crazy, interesting Jean-Michel Jarre kind of synth jazz, yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. you want to call it. Yeah. Um, but I love it. And uh, I think that's just one of the things that makes the movie even cooler. I'm also a big fan of the synthesized music in this movie. I, I did do a survey of like Letterboxd reviews on the app Letterboxd and saw... Just noticing that a lot of people are taken out of the movie by it. What's Letterboxd? Letterboxd is an app. It's a, no, it's a movie uh, uh-huh. review app. A lot of critics, actually most critics are on it, but also you can go review movies. And it's a good place to just diary what movies you watch really is what I do with it. Right. I just was curious, and I noticed a lot of people just saying, <laughs> yeah, but that music really took me out of it, you know? But personally, I love it too. Yeah. It's great. I remember, and this is, a, I'll make the segue quick, but I remember in the early 80s, my friends would just would make fun of any film that had a synth score. So, you know, Escape from New York, laughable soundtrack. Sounds like it was made on a Casio. Blade Runner. They thought that, uh, you know, Vangelis music was (laughs) ridiculous. And it was just sort of like, I don't know if I can talk to you guys anymore because I think this stuff's pretty cool. All of that stuff is in my regular rotation. Well, and what's so amazing is is when you see these, and then these composers like Morshar and Jerry Goldsmith, 
uh, and even to a lesser degree, John Barry, who like after doing all these orchestral scores and jazz scores in Barry's case, they kind of discover the synthesizer mm-hmm. and they go nuts. I mean, what Maurice Jarre does for Witness is is extraordinary, and it's yeah. a synth it's a synth score. Yeah. I'm sorry, I ruined. I I crushed our segue into the last wave. That's okay. Earlier, but, but we'll jump to the last wave now. vision that becomes a living nightmare. What are dreams? The way of knowing things. Dream is a shadow of something real. Why don't you go away? You'll die. I can't go away. The makers of Picnic at Hanging Rock bring a new dimension to mystery. city lies a secret guarded by primeval terrors beyond imagination. One man can stop it. Your dreams will never be the same again. We kind of need to note that this is a movie that's before Gallipoli. That's this right. is the film that came out before. So we're not necessarily talking about these movies in order. Because we kind of want to keep you guessing a little bit. We think it might be fun for the for the game to uh, keep you guessing about which direction we're going and what movies we're yeah. going to talk about. So, but in this case, we are talking to the, the movie that came right before Gallipoli, which would be the last wave. When did you see the last wave? <laughs> I did, So the movie came out, I believe in 77 yeah. in Australia. It might not have hit the States till 78. 78. Or, yeah. yeah. 78. Um, I probably saw it in about 89. And um, I happened to be working at the, 
coolest video store in Kansas City at the time called SRO Video. That's where I was working. And uh, as long as it wasn't a new release, you could rent stuff there. You could get stuff for free if you were an employee. So that was my film school was that place. And uh, speaking of synth music, my good friend Paul Roberts, who has written the score to several of my films, we watched it together. I took the VHS over to his house and we watched this movie called, well, let's watch this movie, The Last Wave. And it blew our minds. Mm-hmm. Um, of all the ones that we're going to talk about today, I, I think this one actually is my favorite. It's very close to my heart. I won't say that objectively it's necessarily the best one, but the one that made the biggest impression on me, um, this is it. Yeah. I, I really like The Last Wave. Can you give us a couple of sentences of what it is? Yeah, um, it's probably called a, a a mystery drama. You know, it's one of these movies that's hard to peg down in terms of genre, but um, Richard Chamberlain plays a lawyer in Sydney who represents these aborigines who are accused of a murder, but he starts to have these dreams and visions that may, that in, in some ways he's actually dreaming evidence for this case, and it seems to be that there might be a connection between him and his ancestry and some tribal aborigines, and it's so that's this very interesting blend of a courtroom murder story and sort of a surreal Carl Jung dream state uh, thing about nature and uh, history. <laughs> yeah. It's this very interesting. Tough. And just, and, 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 you know, with definite elements of the supernatural, just a sense very similar to Picnic at Hanging Rock in the sense that in ordinary nature, there lives a sense of mysterious supernatural ominous things yeah and, which is one of the reasons why i really connect yeah to th- it. there's something about this dreamy quality of peter ware's movies and sometimes it's a dreamy quality that he applies to a situation that there's nothing dreamy or mystical about it and in other cases like the last wave and like picnic at hanging rock there is just this really full-throated embrace of the unknown and that which is out there in usually in the natural world but even in something like Mosquito Coast, there's there's some of that that sense sure. as well, I think. Yeah, in a lot of his films. Um, and I think his earlier things, like Picnic and Hanging Rock and The Last Wave, those were definitely more overt parts of the plot as opposed to, like you said, a more sort of poetic visualization of things that actually are maybe just don't have any supernatural connection. But, but, but if you look at them it. in a certain way, they can feel dreamy. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me a little bit of a Nicholas Rogue movie. Probably of all of his movies, the one that reminds me more of a Nicholas Rogue right. movie than and, any other. And maybe part of that's because Gulpilil, is that how you pronounce his, his name? Uh, uh, yeah. He was, he's in Walkabout. He's in Nicholas oh, Rogue. Right. So that, that was that's the, right. That was the movie that... That's uh, true. I, I guess I would have to put this movie as far as where I pr- first saw it under the category of, I saw it because Criterion told me to. This is one of those, oh, it's in the Criterion collection, therefore I got to see what this is. And I wouldn't. I would say when I originally saw this, I had seen... Uh, you know, Witness, Mosquito Coast, Truman Show, and knew who Peter Weir was, but I didn't think of, I didn't, I guess I hadn't thought about his early career uh-huh. yet. Criterion kind of let me know that he had one, you know. So I saw this movie uh, many years ago. I bought the Criterion. I've seen it a few times. And on this viewing, it kind of struck me, and you guys can tell me if I'm off base about this, but I, I was like, you know, this is kind of an Australian sort of off-center version of what we had with 70s, like, paranoid thrillers. It felt like it could be this mystical version of the Parallax View or, yeah. or Marathon Man. I yeah. was like, you know, you could almost categorize those together. Only the Australian point of view and then specifically Peter Weir's point of view is more apt to veer away from the overtly political into the, the more mystical or naturalistic. Yeah, yeah. 
you're going to laugh, Mitch, because um, I'm going to take a cue from what John just said. And I noticed upon watching it this time a connection to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is my favorite movie. And because you've got an ordinary man who starts making strange choices because he's receiving some kind of mystery that nobody else sees, and therefore he's he's alienated from his wife and his children. Everybody thinks he's crazy. I mean, it's there's a very similar kind of uh, descent into madness. You know, everybody thinks you're crazy with the dollop of the conspiracy theory that yeah. you're talking about, John. So, and it's interesting that they were both came out the same, same year. Same year, yeah. That's true. I I admit now I think about it. He's got well a blonde the blonde wife that's pseudo victimized by all this he sends them off to to mothers right Right. all that stuff happens that's true and we should talk about the opening sequence um and and this is what made me start thinking about it because the opening of close encounters begins in the sonora desert in mexico and there's this discovery of these planes that had been missing from the bermuda triangle and there's just kind of this opening without the main characters involved that just sets up this feeling of mystery that the whole movie is going to have and the last wave begins in the Australian outback in this sort of desert scene. So just visually, there's a similarity to it. And it starts to rain, but the kids at the school are like, there's no clouds, there's no clouds. And then this crazy rainstorm happens, and then the ice chunks start to break into the windows of the schoolhouse, and it's this crazy supernatural beginning. And then we cut away, and now we introduce our main characters. And I felt like, well, that's a very similar structure way of opening a movie that sets the tone. Yeah, I didn't think of that at all. That's that's great. But now it's right there. I never thought about it, but it is right there. Wow. So this is another Russell Boyd. And um, also Max Lemon was his editor on this one. So I've already we already mentioned him before, but as a consistent member of the team, I think there's a consistency with this and, uh, and another film that we're going to talk about. Something about the combination of Russell Boyd's camera, camera work and Max Lemon's editing that I think gets to that dreamy quality that we were talking about. I think... You know, we're on this show, we're talking about the directors very specifically, and, and probably 90% of the time we're going to be talking about the directors, but we always want to bring in the collaborators as well because we're not, we're trying to maybe break down auteur theory a little bit. We're trying to get to what might have also contributed to the consistency of the films, well, not sure, just the director. Sure. And, and is this sort of a, some weird misunderstanding about the auteur theory? Because where was Griffith without, I mean, it seems to me that part and parcel of making an auteur case often involves the fact that that director is surrounding themselves with repeat collaborators to further, you know, communicate this group vision that that develops. You know, it happens that the director is at the head of it. But uh, so I don't know. I mean, the word auteur implies, though, the singular vision of the one author. Well, I mean, you're right. It is a misunderstanding, but there's a reason why there's a misunderstanding. The word itself implies the misunderstanding. Right. And, And I mean, you don't, when you use the word author, you're talking about the guy or the, the man or the woman that sat down and wrote the book. Yeah. And you don't ever talk, well, we should probably talk about their editor at Random House, too. No. We're, we're talking about the person that sat down and came up with the story. So, so then to apply that to film, it's, I mean, to me, it's not the correct way to refer to filmmaking, but we do. I mean, right. and it's. Well, uh, Andrew Saris, when he wrote his notes on the auteur theory, basically said that, you know, there's three things you have to have to be an auteur. You have to have a significant body of work. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have technical competency, i.e. A, a style, a visual style that recurs from film to film, and then interior meanings of themes, motifs, ideas that you return to over and over again. Right. Well, the middle, the, the middle one, part two of that, to me, technical proficiency, you can't be, I mean, I guess you can, if you take the camera, you do all the editing and make the music, 
then technical proficiency is talking about one specific person, but in film it doesn't really apply. No, technical proficiency is the team. You hired the right guys, you know. Yeah. I wanted to bring that up because I think that people could look at our show and what it is and think that we're these auteurists, and that we're going to be talking about how these filmmakers were the grandmasters over these films. I want to make sure we people realize we're not talking about that. We're using that idea to talk about the films, but we're going to get down to what's at the core of all these films and what makes them great. And right. it's not always just the man or the woman that's sitting in the director's chair. Yeah, This might be a, a, a good point to talk about the interesting contributions of the Aborigine actors in this movie. Because when you're talking about auteur theory mm-hmm. and talking about the script, Peter Weir has gone on record to say that the script changed quite a bit when he cast the film because the, I believe his name is... Nanjiwara. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but the uh, basically the tribal elder in the movie. Charlie. Yeah. He he says <laughs> many in, many times. In yeah. in in real life, yeah. he is uh, was not a city dwelling Aborigine. He was a tribal elder, and in real life, and they knew that in order to make this movie, they needed to cast him as opposed to the the city Aborigines, and and so they didn't know if they were going to be able to get this guy or not, and. When and there's a long story about how that happened. That's great to see on uh, you can see on YouTube where Peter Weir talks about this. But the there's a scene in roughly in the middle of the movie where they come over to Richard Chamberlain's house for dinner and they have this dinner conversation. And apparently most of that is just improv. Basically, he said when we would cut the camera, the conversation with Richard Chamberlain and everybody else just kept on going. And, Reload fast. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, and there's a moment where Gopalil is talking about how. His family will talk to him, and when, when they do talk to him, he feels it in his arm, and he, and he tugs on his skin on his arm. There's this mm-hmm. close-up. He, said, he says, that's none of that stuff's in the script. So he says that basically the whole theme of the movie about the law being bigger than the man in tribal law, he says that, that was not in the original script at all, and that completely came from Nanjiwara. So that was a case where just sort of letting it flow and letting the actors bring things to the table. You know, dictated that, a major thematic element of the movie, not just some dialogue scenes. Or, yeah, yeah. I mean, that that's a big part of what this movie's about. That's where, where you talked about Weir being the kind of director that gives the movie room, that wants to have a little space to work. Yeah. You can see uh, these early films, you get that kind of organized chaos feeling from them. It yeah. kind of makes you uneasy, and it's good. I mean, a movie like this, it's definitely good. Because this movie's supposed to make you uneasy. You're definitely, it's a nerve-wracking film for it, sure. It's funny. I get the feeling though from interviews with Peter Weir that um, that he felt like he may have gone too far, and he didn't. Even though I think you know he he still appreciates the film, he said definitely by Gallipoli that that was sort of his graduation film, and that that he had learned enough of his craft and had kind of maybe gotten that out of his system to where I think his films were a little more principled after that. It's interesting with Gallipoli, even the dreamlike quality that you see so prevalent in this and in Picnic and Hanging Rock, you really only have maybe two moments in Gallipoli, one when the guys arrive at night uh, to the beach, and then when they're swimming and the shrapnel is going through the water, under, you know, and those are very kind of dreamy. Most of the movie isn't, but when you look at The Last Wave, or, I mean, I guess I'll use this as a segue to Picnic and Hanging Rock, you are really in a space that is floaty and meditative and not necessarily being driven by plot ideas. You know, it's being driven by emotions and feelings and shapes and music, too. Yeah. One of the things as a filmmaker, when you're trying to steal ideas for how to, you know, know, in terms of how to how to do a certain type of a scene, the way that Peter Weir did 
the dream sequences in Last Wave, including the use of sound, you know, the, the, the didgeridoo score, mm-hmm. this kind of droning thing that's not necessarily even score. It's, it's basically sound design that really gets under your skin. And then this weird sound effect that's is kind of a combination of uh, frogs chirping, and mm-hmm. but then some other, I don't even know what the sound is, but it becomes this recurring sound. And that's when that's the first clue that, that he's dreaming is that you hear the sound first and then this sort of water imagery and slightly slow motion. And I just think that if Peter Weir ever wanted to do just a straight up horror movie, he could definitely do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's just something about these shock cuts, I guess. And I don't mean shock in terms of like you're scared, but in, whereas other filmmakers might more intentionally lead you down some road like, hey, I'm building suspense here, where you kind of steal yourself in the seat like, oh, this is, he'll just out of nowhere cut to some just jolting image and leave you with it for a minute and then cut away and then it's gone. And you're like, what did I, what did I just see? <laughs> There's three or four moments in the last wave where there's just out of nowhere, and this like might be the the role of the editor as well, like you said, where just these cuts to this thing without context, and and you take it in, and then it's gone before you even really know what you're looking at, and your your brain is still processing what I just saw, and the movie's still going, and and you're you're left off balance. I I, I love that stuff, yeah. and, which, and he's definitely is, able to do that. Which is very Nicholas Rogue. That's to me, that's like one of the signatures of Nicholas Rogue movies is that. He'll cut to something and cut right back, and you'll be like, whoa. And it'll have imprinted on you, but you won't even necessarily know what you just saw. Yeah, I think, and if we are now going into Picnic at Hanging Rock, I mean, definitely the use of sound and juxtaposing cuts, what you may just call tricks, um, are used really effectively and just and, and, and uniquely. What we see and what we seem are but a dream. A dream within a dream. You must learn to love someone else apart from me, Sarah. I won't be here much longer. The girl. The boy. The school. The rock. Fragments of a mystery from a summer long ago. Good morning, girls. Good morning, Mrs. Appenella. Well, young ladies, we are indeed fortunate in the weather for our picnic to Hanging Rock. I have instructed Mademoiselle that as the day is likely to be warm, you may remove your gloves once the drag has passed through Wood End. You will partake of luncheon at the picnic grounds near the rock. Once again, let me remind you, the rock itself is extremely dangerous. You are therefore forbidden any tomboy foolishness in the matter of exploration, even on the lower slopes. novel of mystery and suspense is now a spellbinding motion picture. Madame, something terrible has happened. Three of your young ladies and uh, 
and Miss McCraw are missing on the rock. What happened? Well, now, Mrs. Appleyard, uh, that's just the trouble. Nobody knows what happened. Like ripples in a pond, the ever-deepening mystery spreads, haunting the lives of all it touches. This tragedy is little more than a week old. Newspapers all over the world have headlined our morbid affair, Miss Lumley. I mean, you realize that, I suppose. I feel sorry for them kids. She was afraid I'd run away, so she shaved my head. Some of them are orphans. She painted my head with gentian pot. I wake up every night in a cold sweat. Just wondering if they're still alive. Yeah, well, the way I look at it is this. The bloody cop, the bloody abo tracker, and the bloody dog can't find more than I want bloody kids. <laughs> we thought you had gone forever. Tell us! Yes, Irma, tell us! Tell us, Irma! The police are powerless. The townsfolk are angry. The suspicions are limitless. She hadn't been molested. Why didn't you tell us you followed the four girls? I didn't exactly follow them. In England, uh, young ladies like that wouldn't be allowed to go walking in the forest. Not alone, anyway. Miranda knows lots of things other people don't know. We shall only be gone a little while. Secrets. She knew she wouldn't come back. Miranda! Miranda! What is the secret of Hanging Rock? And who will it claim next? Don't take this the wrong way, but not a lot happens in Picnic and Hanging Rock. Not at all. You no. know, I mean, that's part of the seductive nature of it is there is a part of you that's kind of waiting for what's going to happen next. And you don't get a lot of help in that department, you know, and an incident occurs. Uh, everybody is confused by that incident. They're trying to figure out what it means, and nobody really figures it out. And that's kind of the movie. Well, this is one of those movies that is a mystery but it's about mystery. It's not about solving the mystery at all. As a matter of fact, the feeling you get, what you're talking about, this anticipatory, okay, they're gonna, is there going to be a discovery? I think that's the exact feeling you're supposed to have and share with the characters in the film, at least the characters that are left to deal with the mystery. Um, the whole idea of the movie is that there's no solving this thing. There's no answer given. Even the author who wrote the novel won't say whether it's a real thing that happened. And, and you know, Weir even said he, uh, when he went to meet with her, that was the one thing he was told, do not ask her if this is based on a real event. And he said, eh, I'm going to ask her anyway. And he asked her, and she was upset and did not answer. But he suspects, he's pretty sure that something happened. It might not be exactly this, but something happened sometime. But again, there's no answer there. And then he carries this mysterious nature of that story onto the film, and in the end, you don't get answers. It's, and, and that is what 
all the characters have to deal with and their resolutions of sorts at the end of the movie yeah. are are is the frustration the of never getting to know the truth or never getting the answer. So that, in that way, it's like it's like uh, David Fincher's Zodiac. <laughs> right, a, a little Much, bit. Slightly shorter uh, with more girls. The other thing that is interesting in terms of this strategy, because the movie is essentially about a group of girls at a, at a boarding school who go off on a picnic, and then a couple of them disappear, as well as one of the instructors, and it's about what happened to them. And at the same time, it seems to me he's playing around with themes of repression, control institutions all of these themes that kind of don't really have anything to do with anybody disappearing i mean a little bit in terms of how will the public perceive us so that's certainly the institutional Mm -hmm. part of it but i think what's fascinating is how he builds these thematic tracks through a movie that maybe isn't really overtly about those themes but they sort of float around you know and orbit around this this incident at the center of it yeah the hanging rock itself is so enigmatic and and ambiguous that it allows everyone to sort of interpret it differently and and it's it's aware of that that you know you're never you're never privileged to see exactly what happened you know you're, you you get close to that brink of where they are and then we're we're brought back down to the level and and all of our own thoughts get projected onto Hanging Rock. Even this geography of the space, which you would think it's a big old rock in the middle of this flat area. You would think that would be the easiest thing in the world to geographically understand. And he's able to create this sense of disorientation all around that space. So you're really kind of never sure where you are or where you've walked away from or how to get back to where you started. It's yeah. really a, a amazing lost quality. I'm not sure how much that's by design and how much that's just the reality of what happened. What I read was that, you know, he, he had heard about this account of Hanging Rock. And then when they went there on the location scout that the place itself was actually really underwhelming for a place called Hanging Rock. He said there wasn't really any obvious vantage point that, that was uh, amazing, that it was really underwhelming, and that there was a day they were heading back, and then there was all this fog in the air one day, yeah. and they're like, oh, God, you know, grab a camera right now, and we'll get this shot. But I think they were probably scrambling around just to find places that worked because the, the location itself is a little pictorially underwhelming. So that crazy first shot where it reveals itself throughout the fog, they just saw that happening they, and just grabbed it? Yeah, they, they oh said God. somebody get a title. camera fast and they said they were, you know, the sunlight, the sun was going getting higher in the sky and it was burning off the fog and they said they, they got it just in time and that's what they used. It was a location scout shot. Wow. For, for the title sequence. Yeah. Yeah. And. And and what's interesting about that too is that it, it establishes the aesthetic of the movie so well because that is such a painterly shot. Like you look at it and you kind of half think it might be a painting, and then how many other compositions throughout the film do you see the exact same way? Mostly of people. So you get these you know parties and parasols, and they all remind you of paintings that you've seen, and that was intentional. Like he talked about uh, following you know compositionally looking at paintings and and trying to capture the time. And I think a lot of that, a lot of what this movie is for was for him as an exercise was capturing that period. That that last shot, that long, I don't, I guess it's in slow motion, but it's real jittery, you know, where where he pans across all the members of the picnic party again, feels so much like a mem- a weird memory. There was a photographer named David Hamilton who was really big in the in the seventies, and he right. would go on and make a couple of movies. One was called Billitus, and he was kind of known for photographing very young girls uh, and super eroticizing them. But he also had a lot of these girls in very flowy, you know, nightgowns lit in this very kind of 19th century fashion. And apparently 
Weir had a copy of one of his books. And when you look at the film, if you've seen any of that Hamilton photography, it definitely kind of resonates with that. Um, so that seems to be one of the, for me anyway, there's a certain weird 70s nostalgic thing that I just can't help but think about that. And also the score. You've heard his hauntingly beautiful music in movies, on radio and TV. He's sold over 20 million records around the world. His name is Zom Fear, master of the pan flute, that magical instrument with the unforgettable sound. Now in his magnificent all-new collection, Zom Fear plays the world's most beautiful melodies. So Zamfir and the pan flute is also a piece of musical storytelling. Yeah. Um, I think Morcone used him in Once Upon a Time in America, too. Yeah. And also, I think most people would recognize his big hit was called The Lost Shepherd. And Quentin Tarantino used it in Kill Bill Volume 1. Um, it's basically the theme of the um, katana sword that she receives from... Uh. Atari Hanzo is that his name? I haven't seen oh, that yeah. movie in a long time. Yeah. But when he hands it Sonny over, Chiba, right? it's yeah. it, it is actually one of the uh, an amazing segue moment in the movie where he hands her the sword and she thanks him for it, and that pan flute comes in and it fades to black. It's a really great transition. It does seem odd though. It's so it's so Greek. It's so yeah European. It's so and to have it happen in this Australian Outback movie, crazy choice. But just like the Jean Michel Jarre stuff, it works. Yeah, I. It's funny, I. I, it just occurred to me that Peter Weir, I believe, in the 60s, went to Greece. That was one of his first trips that he had taken to sort of explore the world. And knowing that he used Zamfir and then Vangelis in oh, yeah. another movie that we may talk about, yeah. uh, who knows, that might have been the start of his I suppose we should jump to another movie now because we want to keep this thing rolling. Any other thoughts on Picnic at Hanging well, Rock? Well, just one of the things, and this goes back to editing and sound, something that he did in Last Wave and in Picnic at Hanging Rock, and, and actually all of his movies after that, is shooting um, just slightly slow motion, You know, shooting at, say, 26 frames a second or 30 mm-hmm. frames a second, so that it doesn't feel obviously slow motion. And so he would literally just you know cutaways to people listening or looking and just that slight sense of you know, it's a little bit unreal and a little unnerving so that you don't it's subliminal you don't even really know why it's yeah. but but because he's filming something that's not moving in slow motion basically. yeah and so there's even a, a sense of even deeper stillness and and a, a strange unreality to it and he does it a lot like i noticed it well we'll talk about it later but i noticed it in more mainstream movies and then also using the sound of earthquakes and slowing them down and so that they're literally subsonic on the soundtrack so that when they're walking up to Hanging Rock, there would there would be these sound effects that people that would kind of get under people's skin and you weren't even really, really hearing them or aware of what they were, but he would 
do that kind of stuff. So I, I love all those little yeah, tricks. Yeah, that's great. Anything you can do. To... Yeah. Uh, well, let's jump to um... Leapfrog. We're leapfrogging over yeah. two films because we did this out of order to Year of Living Dangerously. Another Mel Gibson movie. Another Mel Gibson. Number so... two. Hamilton. Guy. Occupation. Journalist. Jakarta. First assignment as foreign correspondent. A reporter on the way in. You're an enemy here, Hamilton. Like all Westerners. I felt sorry for you. Dumped in your first posting without contacts. Adrift. Hoping to bluff your way through. But you won't. Guy Hamilton, right? Right. Billy Kwan. I did a lot of film work for Potter. Bryant, Gillian Edith. Occupation, assistant to military attaché. An insider on the way out. Oh, three weeks. To what? Till I go home. Where's that? London. Had enough of the tropics, eh? I've been on the move five years. I'd like to go someplace and stay. Camera! So it begins. The ship left Shanghai a few days ago with arms for the PKI. Look, I'm not telling you this to give you some fantastic scoop. I just want you to save your life. If you let the story break, everyone will know it came from her. Really, I can't let a story like that just lie. You have changed. God, you can't use this. Then you shouldn't have told me. You are capable of betrayal. You will grow addicted to risk. Why can't you learn to love? I gave you my trust. So did Jill. That's why I gave you those stories you think are so important. I made you see things. I made you feel something about what you write. I created you. What is it? What's going on? Some people have taken over government. I'm run! I'm run! We don't want to lose you. I'll be on that plane. Identification Guy Hamilton in Jakarta. Lead in for story. Exclusive interview with the leader of the Indonesian. This is Guy Hamilton in Jakarta for ABS. Metro Goldwyn Mayer presents a new film by Peter Weir, Mel Gibson, Sigourney Weaver. The Year of Living Dangerously. Gibson movie number two. Uh, it's the follow-up to Gallipoli, so it's the movie that comes immediately after. And just as Gallipoli was uh, a very expensive movie up to that point, Year of Dangerously was his most expensive movie at that point. It was $6 million, which doesn't sound like anything now, yeah. but that was like a huge international yeah. um, financing budget. Co-financed yeah. by MGM. And... Yeah. And this this would be my first, the first Peter Weir movie I was aware of. Oh, really? I, oh, I remember commercials for this movie on TV. And the title was very enticing to me. Like I was like, and I'm like 
eight years old. I so you can't go because it's rated R, oh, right? I could never go, and my dad might have found it kind of interesting, but then he would have seen it and never let me go. But, but I just remember the commercials on TV, and I just remember that title. I was like, that is a great title. It you is know, a pretty you good title. It, it's yeah. really great. And yeah. then it had that Bob Peak poster, right? Wasn't mm-hmm. it Bob Peak? That painted poster? poster, yeah. And lots of shots of sweaty people kissing it was, in it was a sweaty time it was a sweaty time a sweaty for movie. movies is, yeah. this, is this really considered Mel Gibson's breakout film the one that made him a star I think yeah, I mean I think Road Warrior had already come out it, uh, that had broken out in the United States so I, but whether or not that made him a star or not I see what you mean yeah and he's with another movie star with Sigourney Weaver right so right. It, so it's a movie star movie and it's being sold as that it kind of being sold as a big epic love story which I'm not sure it is, you know. I think that it's it, it's several things all at once, you know, yeah. and and they vie for prominence in the movie, I think, because it has these two or three major relationships things going on and a political plot going on. And for me is one of the things that is disorienting and sometimes not satisfying. Well, I uh again, the first time I saw it was on VHS and the movie is in cinemascope aspect ratio you know it's 235 to 1 or 2.4 to 1 and i saw it 4 by 3 which basically means about 40 percent of the picture was cut off and so while i enjoyed it until i watched it this one time this last week i had not seen it widescreen and it's it's a completely different movie and i want to make a quick mention because this will be a a benefit to people listening to this podcast Um, i tried to watch it first streaming I rent I rented it on Amazon Prime and it's in HD but it's in 16 by 9 so the, the uh, about 20% of the picture is still being cut off and I thought well it's not as as horrific as back in the day seeing it on VHS 4x3 and so I got about halfway through watching the movie when Mitch came through with a widescreen version and I switched over to watch that and even with that 20% only gone it's still being butchered I, I because I, I went back and, and started from the beginning and I'm like oh my god there is so much so much going on compositionally and with you know o- objects in the frame or um, characters being framed through windows and doorways which is intentional and has meaning that is just gone because the, the, the doorway or the window frame is not in the frame so for the people out there if you see this movie Watch it in full widescreen like it's intended to be seen because otherwise it's just this horribly compromised version. I just wanted to get that on the record. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I was lucky enough a few months ago, unrelated to this show even, I, I rewatched it on Filmstruck, uh, rest in peace. And yeah, it was beautiful there. And then I did my rewatch for the show on, I rented it on Voodoo or Amazon. I can't remember which. And yeah, you're right. It was Ugh. in the wrong aspect ratio. And I was like, mm. oh, it's a lot better than the YouTube. There's a YouTube version out there that's really bad. Um, not in HD and cropped. So, um, yeah, yeah, if you can find that widescreen, that's the way to watch this movie. Yeah, and, and it's you know the talking about the contribution of the camera operator and the cinematographer and 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 the director working together, um, and Wendy Weir, you know, you know production design. Just as an example, uh, Mel Gibson and Sigourney Weaver's characters are, as per what you're buying a ticket for, they're falling in love in the movie, and but because of uh, circumstances they're not directly uh addressing that and there's a moment where Sigourney Weaver is sitting in her room at her apartment she's got a roommate and there's she's framed in a window and she's on the left side of the frame and then we cut to Mill Gibson in his place 
basically in the exact same part of the frame, but facing the other way. And, and so they're both isolated in their own rooms, but because of their framing and the shot being, you know, they're united in that way. And then the next shot is Billy Kwan, who we haven't talked about, Linda Hunt, framed through a window. And so basically this sort of interesting love triangle, maybe you want to call it, mm -hmm. by placing them in the frame similarly and framing them all isolated in these windows, totally blown unless you see the widescreen version. Yeah. So um, it's just really important to, to see these things, how they were uh, intended to be seen. So were their eye lines kind of connecting to each other? Well, they were framed, They were you know because you've got a lot of real estate in a widescreen yeah. frame, they were placed way off camera left, but when the cut happened, their heads were in the exact same spot of the frame so that all the negative space was was yeah. the exact same. And then when they cut to Billy Kwan, he's smaller, but still kind of in the same side of the frame, framed through a window, just like Sigourney Weaver was. There's just really, just, you know, again, these you might call them tricks, but these are the things you do when you're a director and a cinematographer to tell the story without having to beat people over the head with dialogue or yeah. some other cliched way of making it known that they're falling in love. Well, it's definitely a film, too, that doesn't go out of its way to explain the political situation. Uh, that's, you have to pay attention. It's there. It's explained. But it's not it's not done easily. And um, I think what's so essentially for those of you who haven't seen it, it's a story of Mel Gibson plays a. A reporter named, of all things, Guy Hamilton, the director, <laughs> Hamilton. Of, the director of Goldfinger. I could never figure that out. They, they thought anyway. about Terrence Young, and they thought, no, that's not right. <laughs> uh, so he's this—he's covering—he's covering this burgeoning revolution, I guess we, we should say, in Indonesia. In Indonesia, 1965. Yeah, right? in the in the early 60s, and because he seems to be nobody's guy, uh, he catches the attention of one Billy Kwan, a man played by. A woman, uh, uh, Linda Hunt, plays this role, and it's, it's the role that brought her to the attention of everyone. And of course, people saw the film and didn't even realize that it was a you know woman playing a man. And Billy is a photographer and decides that Guy is his man and that he will help Guy. And also sort of guides him toward this relationship with Sigourney Weaver. So there's this very strange theme of puppets and manipulation and and um, which I'm not sure whether it adds up to anything or not. I'm, that's one of the things that I struggle with with this movie. Yeah, I have to say that probably similar to the, the film, the politics didn't necessarily interest me that much. I mean, and I don't mean that it didn't interest me, but the film itself seems to be more about the characters in this situation rather than trying to make a political statement. What I did notice was what is in the foreground, and maybe this is just me being simple, but... Boy, I really love seeing these actors on screen together. Yeah. And whether it was Mel Gibson and Sigourney Weaver falling in love or if it was scenes between Linda Hunt and Mel Gibson. And I just want to say, I had forgotten how good Linda Hunt really is in that movie. She is so, is so great. Yeah. Oscar-winning performance. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and, and we should mention that Michael Murphy is really great <laughs> As and sleazy. sleazy. He's so good in it. He's just fantastic. I don't know. I just, the, the performances were so good. And Sigourney Weaver had been an alien, of course, and then probably Eyewitness. 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 Was there yeah. anything else in between? But No, it was really just Alien and Eyewitness, right? Or yeah. So this we, should be, we should really know this. Yeah, we but, should, shouldn't we? This is the first time I, I think she really got to play this really, you know, she's the love interest, and, and she's, you know, gorgeous. And, but, but she was cast by Peter Weir intentionally. You know, he didn't want to have a more um, common passive love interest he wanted somebody who would sort of earn everybody in the audience to to ad admire and love her and i just 
I we don't often in her career get to, especially after Aliens, where she's got sort of became synonymous with Ripley. You don't get to see her playing this sexy creature. Plus, she's got this British accent that I'm not quite sure if it works or not. But in any Me case, either. the close-ups of her when when her and Mel Gibson, and well, and the, the shots of Mel Gibson too. You know, when he was young and in his prime, like they both just look like movie stars. They're right, both yeah. great. Right. And I really, I wasn't expecting to enjoy that as much watching it as I did and I'm just the sort of sheer Hollywood quality of how classically yeah. cool th- just, this movie was. And Morris Jarre's music, right? Yeah. yeah. Which we could talk about in a minute. I, I don't want to get away from Gibson and, and Weaver right now because I don't know this because there wasn't a whole lot of background info and documentary stuff about this movie that I could find. But I'm suspecting that this is another example of, of Weir giving some space to the actors because I feel like those scenes where they're falling in love, the car, the rain, the sudden rainstorm feels so natural. And the chemistry is really strong between them. If I feel like they're really actually having a good time uh, with each other. Yeah. Really. And that's where you said the political stuff doesn't interest you that much. And you were saying that it's not really, they don't go out of their way to explain it. Or I could have almost done without it. Like if it could, if they could have had this, uh, political background even a little bit more in the background i agree the the problem is and you're probably right less might have even been better because the plot turns on the fact that billy seems to actually care about what's happening there politically right and therefore for us to understand why billy cares about the political situation we kind of have to understand the political situation and i'm not saying you don't but i also don't think it resonates particularly well and so for me it's a movie that um I mean, it's just, the third act isn't satisfying to me. I mean, I'm much more interested in the first two-thirds of the movie, and then when it kind of goes where it goes, I'm, I'm less interested. I don't know. And yet, it's so seductive, and it's so beautiful to look at. I mean, the, the colors, and the, it's, it's, it's gorgeous. It's just a gorgeous film. And, and now we talk about Marie Charest's score, which I think is amazing, and yet kind of the most notable musical moment to me, and it's really, it really is one of my favorite pieces of electronic music, is... The, Opera Sauvage by Vangelis it's sort in the middle of it how did that make Maurice Jarre feel I have I have to wonder it's not like needle drop and a pop song in there it's another guy who just won right Vangelis had just done Chariots of Fire so now he's become this and Blade Runner and he's been this massive film but it is a needle drop right it's, it's off a of total one of his yeah, albums it's from yeah, album. yeah. yeah wow it's it was a French TV movie and I'm forgetting the name of it that's right and the song's called Opera Sauvage and uh I mean Maurice I couldn't have liked that right I'd see it's a very strange choice to kind of throw in another film composers film composition but then again we talked about that a little bit you know well it's the same it was the same guy with alien and jerry goldsmith and throwing in the music right. his own music right what's funny if, if you go on amazon and look uh on the um customer comments the customer reviews of the year of living dangerously soundtrack they it all gets like one star because they're like the one song that I wanted to hear is not on it. Right. You know, I want to hear the Vangelis song. And, oh, of course, man. it's not on there because oh, funny. it's not Maurice Jarre. <laughs> Maurice, poor guy. Uh, well, he, he, he gets his recognition later, though. He had some recognition prior to true, this, too. True, true, A couple of half-ass scores right. that he did. I do want to bring up, that, you know, you're, you said, Mitch, that you were uh, somewhat disappointed in the third act. 
And it, it did occur to me watching it that the choice, the choice of the story is unusual in the sense, and especially, well, to put it simply, without really giving away the ending, well, maybe so. The choice is that Mel Gibson playing Guy Hamilton, who's for the first two-thirds of the movie has been about getting the scoop. You know, I want to be the best journalist that I can be. He decides to give it up and go with the girl. Right. And Billy Kwan does chastise Mel Gibson's character for, you know, the problem is that you're so obsessed with your career that you're ruining relationships and you're ruining the lives of the human beings around you. And it's strange because so many other movies, especially in this day and age, are about the primacy of a journalist, you know, right. the getting the story, getting mm -hmm. the truth out there no matter what. And I, I think that even at the time that that movie came out, that it was somewhat of a controversial thematic choice to make. He was still trying to get away with the story, like right up to the zero hour. Did he make the choice or was he kind of forced to make the choice? Because he still has the tape. And until that's taken away from him and they unspool it until you get this visual metaphor of the unspooling of his career, that's when he finally says, fuck it, I'm going out the door. Yeah, but I think, I mean, that's, I guess, I think that's the climactic moment is that, yeah. you know, I mean, he, he was risking his, his eye, which maybe is a metaphorical, you know, yeah. to, I'm going to lose an eye. And then uh, he's at the airport hoping to be able to have his cake and eat it too. But then when they start going through the, the TSA guys or whatever they are called, <laughs> <laughs> start rifling through and they take away his tape deck, he just leaves and heads out on the tarmac. And in that case, it, it felt very much like a direct, um, you were supposed to compare this to the ending of, say, Casablanca, you know, where here, here you've got this, dilemma of the hero whether do i send the girl on the plane and then take on the larger cause and stay behind or not and in this case it's basically the inverse of casablanca like i'm getting the hell out of out of here and i'm getting on that plane with the girl and yeah. that's that I, I think the cake and eat it too part of it is the problem i have I, I i don't know it doesn't feel like a strong choice it almost feels like a eh I mean, he doesn't really have a choice, right? He's not going to take that back from them. They're destroying it. I mean, to me, I don't know. There's something a little muddy about that. I don't know. I'm with Mitch. The third act, it feels like a big left turn to me. I think I said to you when we were first talking about it a couple weeks ago that it feel, there's something incomplete about it or something. It just feels like they didn't know quite what to do with the third act. But I think it's because I think there's a stronger story there. And you're right that the plot has to turn on the less strong part of the story. And they have to focus on that. So I, f I feel just less than satisfied by the resolution of the film. Well, do we jump ahead to one last movie since we're... I think there's the thing, folks. You're listening to a show called The Quadfecta. We're talking about four consecutive movies. But I think we'd be remiss not to talk about a fifth movie with uh, Peter Weir, which is my personal favorite Peter Weir movie. One of my favorite movies, period, is um, the film. It was, I guess this is his first American film, correct? Right. Witness. Hey, man. They didn't know there was a witness. Carter didn't tell me about the eyewitness. Yeah, Amish kid, eight years old. A man of force. I'm a police officer, ma'am. I have to talk to the boy. A woman of faith. You don't understand. We have nothing to do with your laws. Yes, I do. Your son's a material witness to a homicide. Worlds apart. Now you have a witness. Yeah, now I got a witness. John, what's going on, man? What is happening? You said we would be safe in Philadelphia. Well, I was wrong. You left with the Amish woman, right? If they find me, they find the boy. You bring this man to our house with his gun of the hand? You bring fear to this house? Everyone has an idea about you and the Englishman. 
They're looking for you. I have done nothing against the rule of the Orphan. Nothing? Maybe not yet. We know where you are. Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. Witness. So when this came out, I was 10 years old. I was very aware of this movie, of course, because Harrison Ford was in it. That was the big part. But, but it was also highly marketed and very popular and, right? and, and this so big Paramount it's, movie. It's Harrison Ford at Paramount, you know, and he was one of the kings of Paramount along with Eddie Murphy. And yeah. the force that Paramount was in the 1980s uh, is in, and into the early 90s. But really, the 80s was the Paramount decade. And it's kind of amazing when you think about it now, because like, does Paramount even make movies anymore? <laughs> you know, Star Trek movies, and Mission yeah. Impossible movies. Yeah. I, somebody wrote a story. I didn't read the story, and it said the headline was something. It used to be top top of the heap, but now it's a molehill. Paramount, the story of Paramount Studios. Oh, and that's like, so sad. That's, it was like it used to be top of the. Oh no, it used to be Hollywood's mountain, and now it's its molehill. I think that was the headline. Ouch. I was like, I don't even want to read that. That sounds so mm. sad. Witness. Do you remember when you first saw Witness? Well, believe it or not, I did not see it in a theater, even though I was definitely old enough to see R-rated films at the time. But for whatever reason, I missed it, and I didn't see it till right around right when it came out on VHS. I saw it. I don't have a distinct memory like I do watching The Last Wave with my friend and being blown away. I remember, fi- I'm like, oh, I'm finally seeing it. I missed this in the theater and, and going, yeah, this was really, really good, especially for kind of a, you know, I hate to say it, but thinking about like a movie kind of with a love story set on an Amish, you know, like, I don't know <laughs> if that's going to be any good or not. And it turned out to be great. In its own weird way, it's kind of the template for what would become the Paramount programmer throughout the 80s and into the 90s, which are these crime films usually set in some kind of an interesting world uh, with a strong love story at the center of them. Now, they became very formulaic, and Ashley Judd would be in them, and Morgan Freeman would be in them. and oh, you know, uh, So or, you're talking about those kind of mid-budget pictures like Kiss the Girls and right, stuff like that? Right, okay. James and, Patterson and, adaptations. And, uh, and, and even stuff like Fatal Attraction and you know those sort of... Thrillers and crime films, and those all became the real meat and potatoes for Paramount. And in some ways, it really started with Witness, um, which is elevated genre, I will say. I mean, I think that it's a good script, but Peter Weir brings a kind of magic to this script that makes it special. Uh, it, It was a script that I think Sid Field or somebody, one of those screenwriting gurus, wrote a book and they put Witness front and center as the example of I think you're right. Hollywood structure. And it was a big deal. I think it's a perfect, in my interpretation of a perfect movie. I've watched this movie many, many, many times. I've never detected what I would consider a flaw in it. Like, I feel like every moment matters in this movie. You get this theme of violence versus boring violence, right? You have the Amish, the juxtaposition of murderous cops, a cop that's willing to do violence in his sense of duty, and people that completely shun violence in every way, including even the image of a gun. And you bring this guy into their Amish village and the kid, you know, the small boy played by Lucas Haas, one of the great child performances as well, uh, finds this gun. And there's this whole sequence where it's just a kid finding a gun, a guy explaining to a kid the safety of gun, how you should never have a loaded gun, but, you know, you can hold it if you want. And then grandfather, like, showing the gun on the table and explaining what that means. This gun of the hand is for the taking of human life. We believe it is wrong to take life. That is only for God. Many times wars have come. And people have said to us, 
You must fight. You must kill. It is the only way to preserve the good. But Samuel, there is never only one way. Remember that. Would you kill another man? I would only kill a bad man. Only the bad man, I see. And you know these bad men by sight? You are able to look into their hearts and see this badness? I can see what they do. I have seen it. And having seen, you become one of them. Don't you understand? What do you take into your hands? You take into your heart poignant what he's saying it's very obvious what he's saying that thing is meant to kill human beings but that really means something to them and it should probably mean something to us and you're watching the movie and you're going you know what i watched these movies looking for bang bang we got a shootout earlier in the parking garage and this guy's making me really think about why i watch movies like this right in the middle of this like you said elevated genre film this movie sets itself apart from typical hollywood programmers it, for those who you who have not seen Witness, uh, it's about a, a, a little Amish boy witnesses a murder uh, in a train station in Philadelphia, and the assigned detective to investigate the murder is uh, Harrison Ford. Eventually, they realize that it was an inside job and the cops were involved. There's a big shootout, and uh, Harrison Ford goes into hiding in the Amish village uh, in rural Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, cut off from society, no telephone. And of course, there's a relationship with uh, the widowed mother of the young boy. And so it's also a love story. And posits the question, uh, if he has found paradise, whether he can maybe stay there or whether he has to return to the city and, and whether the violence is going to ultimately uh, ferret him out and come to him. Uh, and I have a question, by the way. Okay. So there's a, there's a key moment at the end of the second act when Harrison Ford's character uh, is surrounded by these Amish people that are being harassed and they're, they're supposed to turn the other cheek and not respond violently. And he, in fact, steps up and punches a guy out, mm -hmm. drawing attention to himself, um, which then is what it becomes the engine that drives the third act of the movie. Right. Are we to believe that he made that choice knowing it was going to out, he was going to out himself and everybody was going to know where he was? Is this a mistake when he makes that choice? Is it a rash decision? Yeah, I think it's a rash decision. Yeah, I just watched it to this morning, Yeah, so it's fresh in my mind. To me, it seems like it was a mistake and not a conscious choice. But what, what ended up happening is that the reason he was more angry than usual was that he had just found out in the scene before that his partner had been killed by those very same inside cops that were doing all the, the killing. Right. And so in that receiving that information, in that anger... Unfortunately, that moment happens when the jerks from the town start taunting the Amish and he just was emotionally already, you know, he just wasn't, he wasn't, he was mad as hell and he wasn't going to take it anymore. And I think thematically, yeah, that mistake uh, led to, I mean, ultimately, of course, it's a Hollywood movie, so it's going to have a, a happy ending, but it, it definitely put people in jeopardy and, and uh, it was probably not the smartest move. Does it come out of his flaw? Is it indicative of who he really is? Yeah. Or, or is he? I mean, he really well, is that guy, right? He's really one, an angry guy. He's not a. Well, he's a guy who his job. I mean, it's described earlier that he does this because he thinks he knows what's right. Like that's what his sister tells 
Kelly McGillis, right. but then Kelly McGillis unknowingly just relays all this uh, secret yes. information to yeah. him. I think the element that's missing from this mistake is that he's now part of the community there. Like he's actually taken part in the traditions of the community, but in his idea of being part of a community is to mete out justice. Yeah. And so in that moment, he's in this valley between the two worlds and he makes a decision, a Philadelphia decision in Amish country. That's what I think it is. Yeah. And it's not a decision, conscious decision. It's just what he knows to do. And it happens to be a really bad mistake. But I, and you're not wrong. It's fueled by the reason why he doesn't think it through is because he's emotional. But the reason why he does it is because he, he wants to defend these people who aren't defending themselves. And he's forgetting that they're fine. You know, that this isn't a necessary thing. So it turns thing. on a character flaw. Yeah, it does. The third act turns on a character flaw that is ultimately he, not really reconciled or anything. I mean, he, he's, just well, damn, he's damn lucky things work out the way they he's, do. Yeah, he's Shit lucky. could worked out another way. Oh, he's really lucky. Yeah. yeah. There had to be chaos and violence involved. He brought that upon them. So, I mean, I suppose that's a reckoning of sorts. He doesn't die because of well, it. Well, th- and thank God nobody else dies because of it. And, you know, that's yeah. the other thing is if this movie were made today... You know, you'd have twenty dead Amish people before the end of the movie, and <laughs> oh, it's and like, and that would be that would be obscene and terrible. Oh, you know, but terrible. you know that's what would happen today. Well, the thing about this movie that really nails it, the, why it's one of my favorite movies, is the most important non-death is the police captain. That ending, the way that they solve this, the way it comes down to a negotiation. If if you can nail a negotiation as the resolution of your third act in an action movie, even mm-hmm. wow! Right, and they right. do it. And he, I'd actually forgotten to, to to your point. It had been a while since I'd seen it. I'd forgotten that one of the bad guys lives at the end. That it wasn't just your typical. Uh, you know, he gets right, blown away too. Right. And the fact that he willingly gives up and seems to take stock that he's wrong. It seemed radical. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And of course, obviously, thematically in the movie, the peaceful resolution is the right call i mean we get a couple of kills to me one of the worst kills in the history of film burying a guy in grain yeah. oh that's terrifying to think of but this guy's shamed into putting down the gun and and it's a classic harrison ford point he, too that does it he says that no enough you, you made, me, you made me think of something though since this whole part of this conversation started with mitch's question about was it a character flaw in Harrison Ford that precipitated all this? So we're talking about that scene where the jerks in the town start taunting the Amish. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think, because that scene, for me at least, I'm pretty sure for most viewers, it oh, feels yeah. good. It feels the good. Oh, yeah. The audience ate it up. And so the if theater, you think sure. about it, if that's this moment where we feel this emotional catharsis, this release from getting revenge yeah. of, of actually physically harming this guy— it makes the ending that we're talking about much more of a surprise because even though there is violence, of course, the final resolution is done peacefully. And so in a way, it's kind of a fake out. Since we don't get to feel it necessarily at the end, we get it earlier. So mm-hmm. it, it, I think maybe it's a, a, a savvy choice screenplay-wise to do that. And I think the movie's pointing a finger at us a little bit, a too. A little bit, and yeah. It's sort of that Hitchcock, you, you're all ghouls right. out there, you, aren't you? You, it, you, you liked it, that. You liked it, but we're gonna, and then we'll punish this you for it. This movie's been trying to tell you that that's not what it's about, and yet you still enjoyed it, and now we're going to punish you for it. I do have to bring up the opening act of this movie, beginning with the Amish community, and then basically the whole movie is seen through the little boy Samuel's eyes until Harrison Ford shows up. And, well, actually, it's still sort of through his point of view until the moment that the kid points out that it's Danny Glover who's the killer. Yeah. 
it's Lucas Haas's movie. I mean, f- down to the point where the camera is down low and... Um, and it's s- almost 20 minutes without any dialogue, certainly almost no significant dialogue. Yeah, so it's exactly. a silent movie. And a lot, of it's in, a lot of the dialogue's in German. Right, you know? right. <laughs> and so, yeah, I just, I love the beginning of that movie because it is almost like a silent film and it's very subjective through this little boy's eyes and the way that we're inter- introduced to not only the Amish culture, but then to urban city culture through this innocent boy's eyes uh it's just it's a beautiful masterful beginning to a movie there's a real dreamy quality too in terms of the landscapes and the way that the wind blows through the wheat Mm -hmm. and all that stuff again you you feel like you're in peter weir territory when you're watching that well even the shot you know we were talking about it picnic and hanging rock and last wave using slight just subtle slow motion and sound cues the moment the kid is looking at that trophy case and sees the face of danny glover in there he looks towards Harrison Ford across the police station office and Harrison Ford's on the phone and they're dropping the sound down and he's in slow motion, like that subtle mm-hmm. slow motion. And all the shots from that moment, I think were probably shot at like 27, 28 frames a second. Just a so teeny, it's just a tiny bit. I noticed bit it too, slow. yeah. Really interesting stuff. My favorite shot in the movie, and I would feel bad if I didn't bring this up because it's something we're talking about Peter Weir's style, whether he acknowledges it or not, is investing non-living objects with a sense, like a personified sense of of whether it's it's making them seem like they're alive or at least at the very least somewhat supernatural. There's a great shot that I guess is what you would call the beginning of the third act, maybe, where the bad guys show up at the Amish country and it's this shot of a road from a telephoto lens and it's on screen for like 10 seconds where nothing's happening mm-hmm. and suddenly over the hill from over the horizon you see this black car kind of come over the hill almost and, levitate up yeah, into the shot and then it's and then it stops yeah. mm-hmm. and then it slowly drifts backwards out of frame kind of like a like a shark's head peer coming up out of the water and yeah. then going yeah. back down and then they cut to a reverse angle where the guys get out of the car and it's the shot you've seen in the trailer where they're walking towards the house with shotguns in hand and the cameras craning up. Any other director, it's just a shot of a car. It's the bad guys pulling up. It, it, it could be the most mundane, boring thing ever, but he invests it with a sense of menace, and that car has almost a monster-like quality, and that's what I really love about Peter Weir. That's actually a pretty good note to go out on, I, yeah. I think. So we talked about five in a row, which is quite unusual. You're not going to have that happen very often. No. Picnic at Hanging Rock, The Last Wave, Gallipoli, The Year of Living Dangerously, and Witness. Those are the five. So the quadfecta could fall in two different places, right? Right. Here's This is interesting because I, I, I guess if we could have done it in a slightly different order, maybe it would have been more mysterious what we were doing. I think we jumped backwards yeah, like I think a so little too. early. Um, what, was, was, what were the four that you thought, yeah. Todd? Uh, well, when I first pitched this idea to you, I had started with Picnic at Hanging Rock and ended with Year of Living Dangerously. Then later we talked about maybe including Witness and kind of, so it's, yeah, it's, I, I guess, I don't know, for me, I am such a fan of Witness as well that I guess I might have to lean in that direction. And especially probably because since Last Wave is my favorite of all of these ones that we've talked about, maybe that's probably the way to go is that, you know, you kick off with something that's. It's yeah. my favorite, and then you know, ending with what I believe is John's favorite, as the book ends for a great and run of films. Gallipoli's Mitch's favorite. Gallipoli always. Ends. So let's take Picnic at Hanging Rock, and I think it's a brilliant film. I mean, Last Wave, Gallipoli, and Witness to me are all top tier films, 
and picnic and hanging rock maybe just a little lower and the odd man out to me i'm just going to jump right in it's a year of living dangerously i think we already kind of gave that away uh to me it's not on that upper tier of of films that on that same level which is one what we're going for we're going for consistency across the board and to me it's got so many problems well i like it i like sigourney weaver and mel gibson in it i like the love story it's beautiful to look at i love the score it leaves me unsatisfied at the end i can't say that at all about the other three films all of them three three of my favorite endings to movies period not just peter weir movies the ending of gallipoli the ending of, or the last wave, and the ending of Witness is one of my favorite endings, even though it's not as weird-like as the other two, because you actually get a little bookend at the end, but I also think it's kind of necessary. You get a John story. bookend. Yeah. You get a John bookend. <laughs> uh, uh, you kind of have to get him leaving, while the other two kind of end on the on these moments. It's a very Western, and it's a little more, yeah. The hero goes off by himself at the end. and there's, But there's it, it had to happen. No place for him in that world. He had to resolve the idea of whether he could stay in the world or not. You can't just... So to me, I, I'm, I'm going to say personally that I'd, I would vote out Year of Living Dangerously and therefore, in my mind, he doesn't get the quadfecta. Either way you look at it, that's going to fall in the four and I think that it's an odd movie out. Wow. <laughs> what do you think, Mitch? What do I think? I probably agree with you, which just shows how... This four in a row thing is such a pain in the ass because, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's the odd one out, too. I, I don't know. I, I don't know whether I would say that it's as great a movie as. In fact, I like Picnic and Hanging Rock even better than I like yeah. Year of Living Dangerously. I mean, well, Todd, though. He we brought it in. I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah. He brought it in, but that doesn't necessarily mean. I'm a, I'm a little bit on the fence. I mean, I understand your guys' reservations about the movie, but um, one of the things we didn't mention about Peter Weir's work that is illustrated in all the four that we're talking about is the sense of a, a culture clash, you know, sort of Western culture uh, versus maybe a more indigenous culture or something. So it's, you know, the Aborigines in Last Wave. It's the Australians going to Egypt in Gallipoli. It's Indonesia in Year of Living Dangerously, and it's the Amish. You know, there's always this sense of two worlds coming together and, and the conflict or just, you know, the, the differences that can arise from there. And, and Green card. <laughs> I, I, totally. I mean, that's right? exactly, yeah. And Mosquito Ger Coast. Gerard Depardieu coming up against <laughs> Andy McDowell. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think objectively I can see what you're talking about and maybe the third act is not quite as satisfying as the endings of some of the others. But um, since it had been a while since I'd seen it and since I had never seen it widescreen and maybe I'm, because I'm a cinematographer, I'm, um, you know, affected by photography more than, but I just the Linda Hunt's acting and the the star power magnetism between the two romantic leads and the 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 photography. I mean, I don't know. It it I get it, but at the same time, I, I think it's it it delivered in spades what that kind of movie was should have could have done. I I don't know. All right, very good, and it really a hell of a run too. If if you go. When it go witness green card, uh, no mosquito, mosquito coast. Coast. no dead, dead, dead poet society. Poet society, then green card. So Some people really like fearless. I haven't seen it I like since fearless. it came out. I like out. fearless too. I, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I don't think there's any. I think I like every one of his movies. Yeah, he, Are you guys going to make me amazing. watch Green Card again? <laughs> I, I guess I mean, I'm going to have to. It's fine. It's, it's not. And even if that's the weakest link, my God, this no, guy's it's... career is it's unbelievable. This guy's a truly great filmmaker i mean he's yeah. he's like on the he's in the pantheon of filmmakers to me but i just don't think he ever got that four in a row down yeah. and so i mean that's 
you know, this the is game. our first episode. It's the game and this demonstrates. It's just a game. It's just a game, everybody. Yeah, just a game. Just a game. But this will demonstrate to our audience that it's not easy. It's really, really hard to get these four in a row. So we look forward to hearing from the listeners on this. We're game to get all the opinions. We're going to put it out to a vote to you guys, and we'll see. We'll have the listeners quadfecta versus the host quadfecta. All right. Well, Todd, thank you for coming in. Uh, is there any anything or anywhere anyone should can find you, or is there anything you need to you want to announce? I guess uh, I have a website, toddnorris.net, and there's also Jetpack Pictures uh, where you can see the videos that I've done with perhaps somebody else on this podcast. We've done these things <laughs> together. So, all right, I don't John, we're doing it. Videos, so. <laughs> this is about it for me. I, all I have to promote is this show, so you're already listening to it. I mean, I did a, I, I co-hosted a show called ABC Devo. If you're interested in the songs of Devo being talked about in alphabetical order, every single song they ever recorded, we did that and finished it already. So go to abcdevo.com. And of course, if you've never listened to Mitch and I on Alien Minute, uh, Todd was on a few episodes of that as well. You can find us at, on iTunes at Alien Minute. All right. Until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>